Okay, so today I'm here with best-selling author Gillian Riley. I'd like to start with a quote that surprised me, actually, that's on the front of one of her books, Eating Less. And that's a quote from Nigella Lawson. She said, A lot of nonsense is spouted on this subject. Gillian Riley is a writer who always makes sense. Now, Gillian, that really surprised me because Nigella Lawson, I thought, was the goddess of indulgence. And here she is, back in your work, which seems to be the antithesis of what you're saying. Am I right? Am I wrong? Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, I, I, I think the, the, the bit for me to say about it is that it doesn't contradict. I mean, she, yes, she clearly adores food, loves it, but that in no way um, would contradict the idea that she would love my work. I mean, I think um, I could... I think I, I would speak for a great many people who do my course. Not everybody, but a great many people. Uh, that They love food. I think that's, that's who they are. They're people who think eating is wonderful. <laughs> um, so uh, Nigella Lawson places herself very firmly in people who can benefit from my work. I've even had people ask me, you know, Am, am I going to lose that love of food if I do your course? And you know, like they're concerned. This is this is some this is you know a joy in my life. Um, but I I think it's not about denying that or turning yourself into somebody who. <clears throat> of course, there are people who just you know they eat they don't eat. It's not a big deal. There are people like that. But I don't think the solution is to turn yourself into that sort of a person. I think the solution is to learn how to live alongside that. And I, it, I, I, I don't know where Nigella is at with it all now. But the last time I saw her on TV, she wasn't that huge. I mean, you know, maybe a little bit overweight, but she certainly looks like one of the healthiest and happiest uh, certainly these days, um, people on TV, um, I, my guess is from what I can see from the outside is she's um, at peace with eating. She, you know, if if her love of food is like, you know, 110%, she, she's, she, you would expect her to be, you know, seriously very 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 obese and she isn't so I think that's the goal it's to love food and introduce um a, a a degree of eating less which is what I teach um that is acceptable you know I mean maybe she doesn't want to be a super skinny size it's fine with me but she's It's good health that I aim for. And also, I aim to deliver what the the client wants. It's like, well, what do you want to create for your life? I see. Um, I'd liken it to a phrase, and maybe this is relevant. 
because I love clothing. I, I work in the clothing industry. I'm a designer and it's very easy to overconsume. And I saw a fantastic phrase on a website and it said, own fewer, better things. And I wonder if her philosophy is eat great food and your philosophy also, but don't eat so much of it. Well, yeah, that's that's a given. I mean, I, I, I run an online course called Eating Less Online. So I'm going to assume that anybody who's interested in my work and signs up for my course is interested in eating less. But the reason I'm saying that is because I'm not the person going around saying, I think you should eat less yeah. or yeah. like that. I, that's not really coming from me. What what I do is I say, okay, you want to eat less. I think more significantly, more importantly, I assume that people want to eat in a way that supports them physically, emotionally, spiritually, that they're eating in a way that they don't then later regret, that they are eating in a way that they don't um, feel self-critical about. And, and that is very strong for people that they're, they're eating in a way that harms their health and perhaps they know it um that leaves them feeling um you know less of a person less worthy less capable less um just less or all, all the way around i mean people judge themselves harshly both for their eating and many times, of course, for their excess weight. And that's what people want to address. That's what I was saying about Nigella Lawson, is she looks to me, at least on TV, that's um, as somebody who is at peace with all of that. It's like, this, this is how I want to be. And that's what I hope to deliver, is, is a process whereby people can achieve what what they want out of their relationship with food. So we're talking, it sounds like, as we've touched on before in conversation, about the mental aspect of eating. So it's about not getting hijacked by the limbic system, dragged into a, an eating pattern that you're later going to regret. So it's about not doing that. How can people avoid this primitive urge that we, we just fall prey to over and over? How can people do that? Obviously, obviously mindfulness um, is a wonderful tool for that. And it, it sounds to me a lot of what you teach is like mindfulness. It's about being in the moment and watching the activity in your brain and not being a slave to it? Well, I think you've answered your own question, really. Um, I think that's it. It's being mindful, bringing a mindful awareness to the process. And I do believe that most approaches, most strategies that people try in order to take control of their overeating 
or whatever form that takes, and of course it takes a variety of forms, um, they in some way, shape or form kind of avoid that. So I think this, what I'm doing is, is quite radically different in that I'm saying, no, don't avoid it. You know, there is um, an, an ancient part of our brain that believes or operates from the assumption, if you like, that food is scarce. And also food isn't really all that interesting. You know, it's sort of like cabbage and a bit of old mutton or something. <laughs> you know, maybe an onion one day is like, oh, this is exciting. Not but sugar, not basically. Sorry? So you're saying it's it's not interesting in that the brain's not going to explode with excitement because it's laced with sugar and fat. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly, exactly. So we have that part of our brain, you're talking about the limbic system, it doesn't have any awareness of modern food and it didn't um, develop um, with permanent abundance in mind, it was scarcity. We often ran out of food. Um, and even, even when we did have food, um, there was never, it wasn't, it, it's the cultural element that's got so strange because there was never a notion of overeating. I mean, there may have been for a few people, but the, the numbers of, of the, the number of the proportion of overeating was tiny uh, you know it may well have affected some people but for most people you know like uh, I'm talking hundreds of years ago I'm talking about our ancestors and I've got the same body as my great 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 grandmother had you know I mean the same physical dynamics but she wouldn't have dreamt of eating between meals why why would you do that you eat at mealtime you know snacking was invented in the 1960s by by snack industry <laughs> and people think i see i see people snacking at their desk all of the time and you're not giving your digestive system a chance to rest it's under constant attack isn't it that is it turns out it's really quite important. Yes. Yeah, because there's a rest and repair state, isn't there? We rest and repair. So without that, if if the, the gut's constantly having to work, people, people seem to think they're putting more energy in, but they're actually taxing their system, aren't they, by snacking? The analogy I heard someone say, and I can't remember um, who it was, but they said it's like, trying to give your house a thorough cleaning while you're holding a large party. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You've got people there and you're serving food and, and you, it's like you, you do one or the other, <laughs> yeah. but not both at the same time. And you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the research indicates that people are really not leaving enough time for the body to fully digest and metabolize the food before they give it more food and that's actually really not good for us because as you say of that rest and repair mechanism and that is why people I think one of the overwhelming kinds of you know 
type of advice that we're getting now is to um is to <laughs> is is uh, like the idea of the eating window or time restricted yes. eating or yeah. sometimes it's yeah. called intermittent fasting like yeah. the idea yeah. of leaving many hours like many hours in between eating um and i eat sort of between a six to eight hour window so all of my eating is within six to eight hours now for many people who start my course that the very idea of it is alarming and will actually send them into rebellion but the thing is i'm i'm not recommending that i i do want to say and if people never do get to that point that's fine with me I'm not recommending things like this, but they are recommended. And that if that is, for example, something that I follow. I've done um, quite a bit of intermittent fasting and it proved to me what we've been talking about because I would go without eating from, say, 7 p.m. at night and I wouldn't eat again so maybe three in the afternoon, I'd have a huge window, like 20 hours or so. And mm. I'd find when I did that, my energy levels were through the roof. Mm. Absolutely. And many people say, oh, I can't do it. I need the energy. But I found quite the opposite. Yes. Well, um, that has to do with metabolic flexibility. Right. And um, what many people many of those who overeat are not uh, metabolically flexible. And what that means is the energy they um, experience and perceive, which is real, but it all comes from glucose energy, which is through eating carbohydrates. If a person or when, if or when a person um, cuts down on that, either because they go on a low-carb diet or because they um, do intermittent fasting, then they lose that source of energy because they're not consuming carbohydrates. Um, so the body so, is called almost to behave in a pattern to wait for that to come in. Is that what you're saying? Well, the body is accustomed to it from yeah. many, many years yeah. of carbohydrate mm-hmm. consumption, especially if it's processed carbohydrates. But high process, high carbohydrate consumption over a lifetime, and very often it is over a lifetime. And so that refers to this notion of metabolic inflexibility. So that person is inflexible in that their body is only accustomed to burning carbohydrates, i.e. glucose, for energy. So the um, the theory, and one of the big current theories anyway, um, is very much that the, the goal would be to develop metabolic flexibility so that then a person can switch, you know, like you might switch a car from electric to petrol or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. It's like switch that fuel source from um, glucose to fat and ketones. So if you're able to do that, you were talking about eating within a very small window and having a long fasting window. What that would indicate is you're probably quite metabolically flexible, or at least you were then. So that's good, is it? That is a good thing. 
And it's a good thing if a person is has more fat storage than they want, because when the person is in fat burning mode, they are burning their fat stores. They also might be burning the fat they're eating, but they're also burning their own fat stores, which is what they want. And that's why many people say that a low carb way of eating is the best way to lose fat or of course, what's commonly referred to as weight, which isn't quite the same thing, but that's another story. Um, so being metabolically flexible is very, very, well, it's thought by many, let's put it that way, to be very, very um, beneficial to one's health uh, in terms of weight loss and in terms of being able to provide the body with that rest and repair mode but if but to begin with if a person has been eating a lot of carbohydrates they would find that daunting to switch immediately but i do want to say chris this isn't actually what my course is about i'm just referring to uh, a current type of nutritional theory and if people don't buy into that or don't want to buy into that that's fine the course, it, what my work is about, is about how to eat less. Now, I personally believe that if a person does eat less of the carbohydrate type stuff, and of course, especially the um, processed carbohydrate type stuff, like sugar and you know refined wheat and all of that, if they eat less of that, um, that is um, that theory explains why or it goes some way to explain why that's a good thing and why that's good to work towards but not everybody's um up for that and i i don't want to sort of give people the idea that i'm a low i i teach a low carb thing or i teach a a high fat thing or an intermittent fasting thing because i don't i what i do is i give people the tools and techniques to be able to put that into practice in a way that lasts long-term, which is the big key, um, if that's what they want to do. Um, and so, sorry, just one more thing. What happens a lot is people do fasting or people do low carb. They do it for a while, but then they spin out of control and they're eating all the carbs they can get their hands on, like they're going, going out of fashion. Um, and so that's a mind thing that that's got nothing. Well, it's it's got a lot less to do with metabolic flexibility and a lot to do with attitude mindset. Yeah. Sorry, what were you going to ask? I was going to say, so in a nutshell, what do you teach? Um, what are kind of the steps or is it a little bit of everything depending upon the person you're teaching? I wouldn't say it's a little bit of everything. No, I think a lot of it is retraining and re-evaluating a mindset that may have lasted for that person their whole lives. I mean, sometimes these mindsets are set up in childhood. I have many clients who say, well, I was put on my first diet when I was, you know, eight and my, my heart breaks. And I know that's still happening. Um, and people say, well, I went on my first diet when I was 15 and I've been dieting on and off ever since. And they're like, you know, 
60 years old now. I mean, this is a long-term lifetime work in progress. Yes, absolutely. Uh, What I do is approach this in an entirely different way and to put this as as quickly as I can, um, one of the sort of the images that that I use is, is it's like I put people in the driving seat, whereas previously they've been passengers in the back seat mm-hmm. and they might be able to do some back seat driving, but they're not really in charge of where the car's going and how fast it's going and when it stops. Um, it sounds very much like mindfulness again. Well, yes. I mean, obviously the driver of the car needs to be mindful, like the passenger could go to sleep <laughs> and be asleep. or you know just not care Uh, so I think that the sorts of strategies that people try like following a diet counting calories um, weighing food um, counting carb grams or um, like nutritional theories it's like the basic idea of I'm not capable myself of controlling my eating so you tell me what to eat you tell me how much to eat and even intuitive eating seems to be different but in fact isn't you know you tell me I'm I must only eat when I'm hungry and stop when I'm full so I'm still given some rules restrictions that I must be good and follow and it's all really versions of a very similar theme. I mean, the trouble with intuitive eating is it doesn't actually work. We, we don't actually have an innate, finely tuned system because we never needed one to tell us, oh, am I hungry? Let's eat now. You know, in fact, hunger is just the beginning of the digestive system, um, the digestive process. And it occurs when we expect to eat. So initially, you know, again, hundreds of years ago, I got hungry when the sun was beginning to go down and I had the expectation of returning home, you know, and gathering with my tribe around the fire or whatever it was I did and eating. And so I got hungry then. And the hunger is the beginning of that digestive process. There's the release of dopamine, which is the expectation of eating in in the brain. That's that activity of the limbic system. There's excess saliva, which is the very start of the digestive process. Digestive enzymes are released to, and, and insulin is released into the bloodstream in preparation for uh, the food that's going to arrive. And that's all well and good and natural and positive, but only if I'm expecting, you know, my evening meal, but not expecting to eat just because I've gone shopping or, you know, I'm at the mall or I happen to walk past McDonald's or I felt a little bit bored one day, you know, in the afternoon, because that can trigger it as well if we've got that tied in through the Pavlovian conditioning. And so we're expecting to eat and feeling that hunger signal all over the place. It's got nothing to do with requirement. It's not, it's not got anything to do with our physical requirement. 
That's news to me. Not, I thought, well, not, not necessarily. I mean, yeah. not necessarily. And very often not. Yes, very often we're a long, 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 long way, which is what we were saying earlier about people eating way too frequently. So um, you have not a, allowing the body to go into that rest and repair mode uh, because they're continually responding to uh, the Pavlovian response. And remember, you know, Pavlov's dogs salivated. That that was the key. You know, that was what he was looking at, in fact. Um, sorry, you, you were going to say something. I'm rattling on again. So we're educating ourselves the whole time. It's like if you go to a vending machine at 11 a.m. with your coffee and you yep. have a chocolate bar or a bag of crisps or even an apple maybe, you're <laughs> teaching yourself to prepare for that and to think you need it when you actually don't. You may yes, think absolutely. you need the energetic boost. You're, you're expecting it. Yes, absolutely. And physically, our bodies never needed to know the difference between a need and that excess expectation. So it confuses the two. Because physically, our, our biological selves, <laughs> biochemical selves, um, just assume if if you're if if you know it's eleven o'clock, you need to go and get that chocolate bar or apple or whatever. And if you don't do that, your survival is at stake. Mm -hmm. So it's quite serious. The message that we're getting from our limbic system, or it's sometimes referred to as our reptilian brain. And it drives, of course, all creatures. Um, it, it's quite serious. It really is there. It's like, you'd better eat something or you might die. <laughs> And that's the master, isn't it? That's who gets the information first and decides whether or not to pass it on to you. To pass it on to you as in towards your frontal um, lobe and have some command. So you're acting on a command you've got no control over, really. Well, that, that's the thing, is first of all, understanding that it first of all registers in that limbic system or just further back in the brain, evolutionarily, you know, older. And the purpose of the work I do and the whole process of, of the work I'm doing is to enable it to filter through into the frontal lobes, because that's the place where we can reevaluate it. And very often people don't do that. They've never been taught to do that. Uh, so it's not their fault. I mean, I tell you, everybody, it breaks my heart. Everybody blames themselves. And everybody, it's quite extraordinary how many of my clients um, think that they're the only ones who, who are stuck with this and who are doing this. There's a lot of shame around the overeating behavior and so nobody's talking about it, really. And so many times I hear people say, oh, I'm, I'm so glad to hear I'm not alone. And I think, of course you're not alone. How could you be alone? With like, I think it's going up to 50, 60% of the population are either close to obesity. I'm not just talking about a little chubby. I'm talking about obesity and serious obesity. It's going up, not down. Um, 
And people think, oh, this is my fault. And I'm just awful. I should be able to do better. And I'm just a dreadful person for not being able to. And a lot of a lot of what I do is, first of all, explain people to people what they can do, which they've they've never come across this information before. They've just been told what to do. They've just been given instructions like, you know, don't eat for, you know, don't eat between meals or don't eat this, don't eat that, only eat so many calories. You know, they've been given instructions, but they've never been put in the driver's seat. They've never been taught to drive. Just you. Sorry, some of what you were saying, um, you know, we've got a Facebook group, Mindfulness in Daily Life. And I put some, I told people you were coming on, onto the podcast. And I asked if there were any questions. And <laughs> what you just said has made me think, has, has brought up one of the questions I'd like to ask you. Um, it's by someone called Shana. And she said, what can I do when I find myself sabotaging my healthy diet? My thoughts are, you deserve this snack because you've been so stressed today, or you don't deserve to eat, to eat healthily for yourself. Go ahead and eat what feels good. Well, how to summarize what I spend you know, maybe an hour on in the course <laughs> in a couple of sentences. But having said that, um, you know, uh, we haven't spoken about this idea of addiction. Uh, but the idea of the concept of food being addictive is incredibly helpful and very well supported by science now, neuroscience, stud, you know, scans of the brain and the the effect that food has in the brain of an overeater is so so similar. I mean, it's not exactly the same as smoking and cocaine and alcohol and you know there's differences, but there's enough of a similarity in the brain reaction um, to be able, I think, fairly easily to call. Um, it's not really that controversial now, but one of the things that happens with addiction is it kind of, uh, it's useful to think of it as a kind of a separate entity, like a, a little gremlin that we have in our, our brains uh, that talks to us, like, go on, do that, you know? Right. And I th the think that's... Is the chimp, the chimp in the chimp paradox. Yes, you could call it the chimp, or or, um, or people have different ways of talking yeah. about it. And yes, um, but... I think it's helpful to sort of, um, yes, personify it even and learn how to have conversations with it. But an addiction, any addiction, will always be justified, will always have um, a ready-made rationale. Mm. So what that person, Shana, what she's talking about there is universal. First, first of all, she's not the only person who's having that kind of conversation, who has that kind of voice. That's the voice of the addiction. And being able to be mindful about that and be aware of it and to be able to identify it and know that that's what it is. 
oh, that's my addiction talking. That's my chimp or whatever you want to call it. That's my little gremlin saying, go ahead, and eat. you know, you you don't deserve to be oh, yeah. healthy. You um, you deserve a treat because you've been so stressed today. And the thing about that, and this is where I'm getting into the couple of hours explanation here, but the, the thing to understand about it is it's always going to be there and it's always, you know, some rationale for going ahead and doing whatever the addictive behavior is. It's always going to be there for everybody who has an addictive relationship with anything at all. And the other thing about it is it's always going to fit the circumstance. So it's always going to be the most plausible, sensible thing. It could be. And the the way to see through this or one of the ways to see through this could be understanding that for her, she might think, oh, you've been very stressed today, so you need to do this, you know, overeating. But it could also be, oh, you're a bit bored. You know, you don't have enough to do, so you'd better do it in another circumstance. Or it could be, um, you know, so the things don't actually fit together. Do you you see what I'm saying? Well, I noticed that in in the two questions, it's like using that voice in, Shana is using two different circumstances to get her to do the same thing. And that's what you're saying. It's the same voice, but it's going to use whatever it has at its disposal to lure you into doing what it wants you to do. Yes, that is part and parcel of that limbic activation. That is exactly what goes on. And the thing to understand is to be able to see it for what it is, to be able to notice it, to be able to be aware of it, and then be able to just speak to it. It's like, oh, okay, darling, right. Um, Yes, very interesting. But to have some distance from it is to not be in the grip of it and to recognize that it isn't your... um, I, I guess what some people refer to as your higher self. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Is that the right phrase? And people use different terms. Absolutely. But it's, it's your addiction speaking, not your true self or your higher self. Or, you know, I'm pointing to my heart. It's not what I truly want for myself. But, you know, the other thing about it is this. Um, well, anyway, do, I could go on for hours. Do, do you want to ask me another question? <laughs> Shall I stop here? I'm going to stop there because we're running out of time. And okay. I'd like, um, I'd like. Or if, there's, if there's another question, maybe. I... Yeah. Um, there, I think rather than another question, is there anything you feel um, you'd like to say that perhaps we haven't covered? Um, and you can talk in a moment about what you're offering on your course. But yeah, so. Is there anything you feel we've missed from your teachings? Obviously, there'll be a lot, but... You know, I think we've touched on a lot of it. Um, yes, I do. Um, I, I can't think of anything huge that... The only um, thing I was going to say, actually, is we've spoken about um, the mental battle. Now, in mindfulness, in tune with that is the feeling of that which the voice is trying to get you to avoid. For instance, my addictions come to me when 
I feel, for instance, a moment of sadness. I might feel sad and instantly my brain reaches out for my addictions. It mm-hmm. goes looking and it convinces me to do that, that I deserve that, like that lady said, that I need it. Mm-hmm. But in mindfulness, as well as doing the reflective looking at the thought and the distancing, we also feel what arises in the body as well. So we, we feel that urgent pull viscerally. And I wondered if that might be part of your answer oh, yeah. too. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That's the way through. And that's the healing of it. That, that's where you actually um, resolve and, and um, make progress so that you're not just sort of spinning your wheels. Because a lot of people feel that, you know, they're, they're going back to their swimming club, they're going back to their diet, they're going, and, and it just feels like this is more of the same. I, there's nothing, nothing is, um, nothing's really changing. Like, yes, okay, so I lost yeah. some weight, but then I put it on again, and now I'm back to square one. So what you're describing there, that um, integration of mind and body, and that, communication between mind and body and mindful awareness of both what's going on in the mind and the body and the connection and the way that they relate to each other that is the healing process and that is how people actually make progress and come out the other side but the other thing that I want to point out from what you've just said there is the um the feeling sad um is essentially nothing other than another Pavlovian response, which is essentially the same as perhaps somebody who goes shopping and whenever they're at the shop, whether it's a supermarket or a mall or up the high street or whatever, is what they always do is they buy a little thing for themselves and eat it, you know, like that, maybe you know, like that, that's, that's a, a Pavlovian response. Wow. And the emotions create Pavlovian responses as well. And it, they're very quick to pick up. It might've been a time when you were a kid and you felt sad. And so you ate something, or maybe even your mother noticed you were sad <clears throat> and offered you something sweet and sugary to cheer you up. Um, so, it's not unusual and the amazing thing and I do want to underline or highlight amazing is that can in fact be broken and and I have done that I had very strong connections with food and in other words with um you know so-called negative emotions and difficult emotions emotions we don't like whatever we want to call them Um, unpleasant, uncomfortable feelings. I had very strong connections with food and I worked on that and released that through this process. And so now when I'm really upset, I quite specifically don't want to eat. (laughs) Wow. I really don't. You turned the whole thing around. We're we're out of time, Gillian. That has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Um, I thought, because I, I've spoken to you many times, and I thought I understood everything you do. And there's some insights there that I didn't know were going to come along. So thank you. Now, You're welcome. You're yeah, welcome. Yeah, thank you. 
your books um, are bestsellers and you have a course that um, people rave about and you're about to start another one. Would you like to leave the details? Yes. The course is an online membership site that goes over six weeks with material at least at least three hours a week, um, videos, exercises. Um, there's also a, a forum, which is like a sort of Facebook, but it's not Facebook. It's an internal forum where people can ask questions and share experiences. So that course goes over six weeks. And what I always start with is two free live interactive webinars for people to talk to me and ask me questions about the course of two um, consecutive Sundays. And also in between those two uh, live webinars, there's also a free trial of the course. So people can go on the membership site and see what it kind of looks like and feels like and see if it's something that they want to learn from, engage in, and then, you know, they can go forward with purchasing the course if that's what they want to do. But they've got the best idea. Of course, they can also read my books as well, but to understand more about what it is I'm teaching, but that's not an essential part of it. They can learn everything that they need to learn in the interaction of the actual course. And the, the whole thing kicks off on September the 26th with the first live interactive webinar. If people, their schedule means that they're not able to um, attend that, they can just do, it's, uh, there's a replay on the site and they can access the site for the free trial starting on the 27th. And if you could just repeat the site again? The site to get all the information, first of all, and then all the links to everything, if you want to sign up for the free trial or whatever, um, is eating less online, all one word, eatinglessonline.com. Thank you, Gillian. Thank you. I hope to see you again. You're a yes. bright light in this world when we need it, especially with the Thank pandemic you. and everybody losing Thank control of. Thank uh, you. I, I do. I do. Um, I do have the sense that this is even more important for us now in all kinds of ways. To look after our health and um, take control of our eating. Thank you. Even when there are extraordinary and very difficult circumstances for a lot of people for a whole range of reasons. Excellent. Thank you for now, and I will see you soon. A massive thanks to Gillian there. That was incredible. I'm sure you'll agree. I'd like to thank the patrons of this show that make this all possible. That's Bonnie Harper, Janice Bayruns, Mark Buchanan, Michael Polam, Henrietta Nemeth, Anne Pass Gregory, Becca Sue, and Claire Jenkins. Thank you so much, guys. Have a wonderful week. Take great care.